Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Civil War ended over 600,000, now perhaps over 700,000 lives. Many lives ended dramatically, perhaps heroically, fighting on the battlefield. But as listeners to this show know, more people died of disease than from combat. Considering what the soldiers had to endure, harsh conditions, primitive medicine, lack of sanitation, it's a wonder how any of them stayed healthy. It's also a wonder that so few historians have looked systematically at soldiers' health. We'll talk with one who has, Catherine Shively Meyer, author of Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers and the Environment in 1862 Virginia. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as most weeks from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, looking out at a cloudy but no longer threatening sky. We've had tornado warnings all day uh, and warnings last night as well, torrential downpours over the last two days, lots of flooding, Uh, tornadoes actually touching down here in Pitt County, in fact, but uh, not too much damage, uh, and as far as I know, no fatalities, so good news there. Uh, We're doing fine. Uh, The show is going forward as always tonight. I was asked would I be canceling the show. I said, no, I think I'll do it indoors this week, uh, as I have for the last uh, 500 weeks in a row now, approximately. So we're okay, even though the weather uh, could be threatening, but it's turned nice, so we're, we're good there. Uh, it is finals week here at East Carolina University in the spring of 2014, uh, and even though I'm in the building 
I am not speaking for the university. Let's not forget the legal disclaimer. Not speaking for the university, nor will my guest speak for any university or any other entity. We're all on our own, as always, here at Civil War Talk Radio, which is, once again, the number one show on Voice America. Uh, More people click on this than anything else on the network. I was told that a couple uh, weeks ago, that it, it had been true for two consecutive months, and I haven't inquired to find out if that's changed, nor do I plan to. I, I'm just going to keep repeating it as relic knowledge over and over, week to week, um, until somebody proves otherwise that uh, we've been surpassed by the shows about unicorns or uh, model trains or something else. So for now, we're still in the lead. Uh, which I wish I could also say about East Carolina University, but I've been told uh, from many quarters to to knock off the kvetching every week. And so I'll just say that too many of our our best faculty are fleeing for greener pastures elsewhere. Uh, If you know of a university looking for uh, talented, uh, highly motivated uh, Civil War talk radio hosts, uh, please uh, uh, send them my way. Uh, but in the meantime, those of us who are here are determined to to stick it out and, and uh, keep people from running this place, uh, uh, turning it into a, a different kind of university. But that's what I said I wouldn't talk about. Let's move forward and talk about the good things that are happening uh, here on Civil War talk radio next week. Linda Barnacle joins us to talk about the Battle of Milliken's Bend in 1863. Following week, May 14th, Bjorn Skapson from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop and uh, a frequent uh, program leader at the Shiloh Battlefield will be with us. On the 21st, uh, Michael C.C. Adams with his uh, new book on the dark side of the Civil War will join us. Then comes Memorial Day. We'll take a week off and recover from all the exciting things that will be happening in the month of May 2014. On June 4th, Rachel Sheldon has a book on politicians in Washington, D.C. before the war. Washington Brotherhood, it's called. Looks very promising. So lots of interesting things coming up in the weeks ahead. We'll do a few more shows after that uh, to round out the month of June. And then... uh, Uh, take the summer hiatus, line up new shows for the fall. Lots of good ones coming up there as well. I had an interesting time last Saturday at Plymouth, North Carolina at a Living History Weekend where a three-eighth scale model of the CSS Albemarle sails up and down the Roanoke River. That's not three-eighths inch to the foot, uh, if you're a a model enthusiast. That's three-eighths scale. It's almost half size uh, it's a it's a big boat and goes back and forth. Uh, it has some artillery on it. I'm not sure exactly what, but it makes a loud noise when they shoot it off. And uh, it was quite impressive along with the reenactors, although uh, it, watching a reenactment up close, and I haven't done that in a number of years, raised a lot of questions that I then raised with my students last week. And I'll leave that topic for another uh, time to talk about. I'll be curious to see what the students say on the final exam about Civil War reenacting. 
And uh, again, we'll leave that for another time. You can find out what's going on on future shows, as always, by checking out www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things running. You can donate to the show to the clicking on the Amazon button that tells uh, that, that sends money to Civil War TR at AOL.com, which I can then use. Uh, to go to other reenactments or to uh, buy really anything I want. I'm just looking out the window at random objects, thinking I could buy one of those or one of those. Uh, it's not a don't. It's not a tax-free contribution, not tax deductible. It's it's just giving your money away. You might as well be tossing it out the car window for all the tax benefit it will do you. But I like it. Well, enough uh, nonsense on that front. You can also. Uh, buy copies now of uh, All for the Regiment. Some people have asked about that lately. Uh, the, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, is back in print as a paperback. And uh, enough chit-chat about things on the show. Let's get back to 1862 and the world of common soldiers in the state of Virginia, Union and Confederate, dealing with the uh, the, the natural environment, uh, from microbes to muddy roads, and how they survived it. Uh, our guest to talk about this is uh, Professor Catherine Shively Meyer. Uh, her book is titled Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers and the Environment in 1862, Virginia. Uh, Professor Meyer, are you there? I am indeed. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, I, I've been really interested in this book uh, since first seeing it come across the, the radar here and it had been telling listeners on the show that this is an environmental history and having read it now I realize it's environmental in a, a different sort of way it's uh, it's not like uh, a ruined nation for example a book about the uh, the chopping down of trees and burning of houses. It's about the soldiers mm-hmm. and how they survive the environment. Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, but let, let me, I'm jumping ahead because I found this book so interesting. I want to ask you about it right away. But let me backtrack because you and I have never been properly introduced, as they say. Uh, <laughs> but I, I gather from the dust jacket, you teach at Virginia Commonwealth. Uh, how are things there? Wonderful. Well, I think much like you, uh, we've been having quite the rainstorms uh, today, mm-hmm. but um, Virginia Commonwealth is wonderful. I mean, it's located right in the center of Richmond. There couldn't be a better possible location for a Civil War scholar, so I'm quite pleased. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And at the risk of trying our listeners' patience, how many students do you teach in an average semester? Um, currently I'll teach around 80 or so. Um, some of my colleagues will teach up to probably, mm, they could go up to 200. It, it sort of depends on the semester. Okay. I, I'm curious because we're being held to all kinds of new targets here that seem unreachable, <laughs> unreachable, um, given the size of the classrooms that we have, we can teach three uh-huh. or four classes a semester in full classrooms and still not come close to the targets that they want. And 80 students a semester seems like a very reasonable amount. It is, yeah. Uh, 
uh, and we, we can do that, but they, they're, our target is 120, and very few of us, and we don't have, we don't have any rooms that large. Uh, mm. uh, anyway, it, it's, so I'm, I'm curious now if other, if, if we're just slackers here at ECU, or uh, for what it's worth, 180 is what they do at Chapel Hill and at uh, uh, NC State, uh, where I asked my colleagues the same question. So I'm glad to hear VCU is in the same ballpark. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have we have difficulty with smaller classrooms as well. Um, you know, history departments don't don't seem to get the larger classrooms that say MassCom um, are offered. <laughs> and that's that's often the case. Well, let's talk about th- this book. Uh, it is a study of, of, as the subtitle says, common soldiers in in Virginia. Um, th- how did you get the idea for it? Well, I think you already um, sort of hinted at it. Um, I really came to this uh, starting with the soldiers themselves um, and looking at letters and diaries mainly, but also memoirs, um, and noticing that they really discuss the natural environment all the time. Um, You know, it's to the point of tedium, right? Anyone who's looked at a, a Civil War soldier letter or diary is how much time they spend sort of cataloging their natural environment, talking about the weather, um, then probably mentioning their health for the day. And we've sort of always taken these things for granted as 19th century pleasantries or, you know, just farmers talking about um, what they're used to talking about, which is nature. But I started to ask myself, well, is there something more um, to the fact that really every letter and diary you pick up seems to discuss the same sorts of things. And I um, started to see connections between health and the environment um, and soldiers mentioning, you know, and when I, when I discuss health, it's not just physical health, but also mental health. So you'll see soldiers, for instance, saying, I've been laying five days in a rainstorm. I am so lonesome. I don't think I can go on. You know, and I thought, well, that's interesting that they're sort of connecting this to the weather. And then the same sorts of things with um, physical health or disease, they'd say, you know, the ground is so moist that I've had this darn diarrhea now, you know, <laughs> for the past week. And if only the weather would just clear up, uh, maybe my diarrhea would go away as well. I thought, okay, it's pretty clear these guys are, um, you know, they're making connections between the natural environment and their health. And this is something that's worth investigating. So how how did you design the study? What what did you? I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of soldier letters to to review. Right. How, how did you decide to make a selection? This is a very good question, and actually, um, it's it's really difficult being a, a scholar of common soldiers because there were so many, and we have such a wealth of sources that you know it's sort of like we're rich in sources. You know, other people have to just strive for any scrap they can pull together, but we have so many, you know. Um, so the problem is really figuring out how to design a project that actually comes to some conclusion, something you can analyze that's useful. Um, so that's why I chose to do a case study. And part of the reason I ultimately decided to keep my study small uh, was the difficulty in getting at um, a sort of daily charting of soldier mental and physical health, and particularly mental health, is really difficult to chart. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I got it accurately, and I wanted to make sure I understood why the soldier himself said his health was fluctuating, because nowadays there's a lot of em- emphasis on things like 
post-traumatic brain injury and PTSD. And I think all of these things are great advancement um, in studying soldier health. But, you know, in in the 19th century, that's not how soldiers conceived of it or how 19th century Americans conceived of mental health. So I really wanted to enter into their world and their experience with health. Um, So I picked a relatively um, small subset of soldiers in Virginia in 1862 in two concurrent campaigns, the um, 1862 Shenandoah Valley campaign and the Peninsula campaign, because they overlapped and uh, were nearby. And contemporaries thought the Shenandoah Valley was this healthful Eden where you'd go basically to spas, uh, to soak in the waters and, you know, be very healthy, uh, whereas the Peninsula was viewed as this sort of virulent, harmful, swampy uh, place that, you know, really should be avoided for health reasons. Um, but ultimately, I, I chose this smaller group of soldiers, a little over 200, although I looked at many more sources in the course of the study. Uh, but my sort of 200-plus core guys, uh, I charted their mental and physical health for every day in an Excel sheet and said, okay, how are you presenting your feelings about your health today? You know, how's your attitude? Are you melancholy? Uh, what are you saying? about? Do you have diarrhea today? Uh, and I put all of this in a chart, and then I'd figure out why they thought they were sick or why they thought they were despondent that day. Um, and those connections were um, often, very, very often linked back to nature. Um, so that's how I kind of approached uh, the case study, and that's why I did so. And, and these are both Union and Confederate soldiers that you looked at. Correct, correct. And I thought, you know, there would be a difference, uh, a significant difference, actually, between um, Confederate and Union soldiers, because, of course, Confederates um, were doing this kind of loud announcing when the Yankees are coming down and they're going to, you know, languish and die in the swamps of Virginia, uh, these sickly environments that they're not bodily acclimated to. They're not seasoned, um, is the word they would use, to the southern environment. So they're going to come down and die in the swamps. And, you know, as the Peninsula Campaign in particular was progressing very slowly, they said, oh, McClellan, he's going to kill all of his soldiers. You know, I hope he enjoys himself <laughs> as his soldiers die in the swamps of the peninsula. But, of course, what I found was the Confederates also died in the swamps of the peninsula. Um, so their sort of grandiose vision of, of seasoning did not pan out in the way they expected. Well, there are a number of things that, that you describe here that are not quite perhaps what, uh, what one might expect to find. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk more about these findings and more about the health of soldiers in Virginia 1862. Our guest today is Catherine Meyer. The book is Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers in the Environment in 1862, Virginia. And this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Catherine Meyer, author of Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers and the Environment in 1862, Virginia. Uh, in our first segment, we talked a little bit about the structure of this study, looking at Union and Confederate soldiers in the Peninsula Campaign and the Valley Campaign to see what they wrote about in terms of their health. Um, and uh, uh, Professor Meyer, in our correspondence, you sign your name, Katie. Can we go by? Is that okay to call you that? Yes, please do. Uh, yes, and and call me Jerry, please. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Katie, you you discovered uh, as we ended the first segment uh, that there was not a lot of difference in the uh, Union and Confederate uh, experiences with health. But I want to go back before the war. Uh, you said that soldiers wrote constantly about the environment. Uh, the the weather, the the terrain, everything that was around them. And most listeners who've read memoirs and letters are familiar with this, and, and we do tend to skip over it sometimes. Uh, but you, you said that they, they attributed their diseases sometimes to the weather, uh, to the conditions they were in. Mm-hmm. What, was the, what was the state of medical knowledge among the the populace in, in the 1860s. Right, so at mid-century, um, medicine was really in this transitional period. And the one thing Americans could really agree on, and I mean uh, medical professionals down to lay people, is that environment played some kind of role in human health. And what they meant by that was that there are things like seasonal shifts, um, certain climates, particularly the South or sometimes the West, um, they believed had potential adverse effects on the human body and also um, mental health, um, things like causing hysteria. Um, and these ideas seemed corroborated or confirmed by lived experience because 
uh, for those who lived in, say, the South in the summer. Um, many people became ill with diarrhea, malaria, uh, you know, typhoid fever, all of these sorts of um, life-threatening illnesses. And it was common practice among the rich in the South to sometimes flee, um, particularly on the seacoast, areas that were considered sickly for healthier climbs, somewhere northern or in the mountains, etc. Um, and it's well documented and well known among many Civil War enthusiasts that um, in particular South Carolina plantation owners would um, abandon their plantations for large portions of the year um, to the enslaved to um, work the land while they were, uh, like I said, escaping to healthier climbs. They believed that their... Um, enslaved workers were better acclimated to these dangerous environments. Um, so these were just sort of commonly held beliefs about disease causation. And um, the state of professional medicine was really in flux. I mean, it was sort of a disaster. Um, many physicians believed in those kind of environmental theories also, particularly the miasma theory, you know, the idea that swamps and garbage and rotting animal or vegetable flesh um, conducted disease. They believed in those, but they also um, still subscribed to the, the humoral theory or the idea that the body was composed of four humors that needed to be balanced by um, expelling, you know, <laughs> expelling mm. said fluids, uh, famously bloodletting, um, but, you know, uh, also other, you know, various forms like vomiting and those sorts of things. Um, bloodletting was really falling out of favor by mid-century, but it was still uh, part of, you know, what physicians practiced. Um, so, in short, the professional medical field uh, was sort of groping about for new theories that would really come down the pipeline in the 1870s and 80s, things like germ theory, insect-borne theory. They're about 10, 20 years in the future. Um, and, you know, in this period, People sort of don't know what to think, but professional physicians are worried about their reputations. They want to cling to expertise. Um, so they're sort of clinging to the past, where the populace is sort of clinging to what they see and can confirm in their lived experience. So you point out that professional uh, medical opinion is, is being challenged mm -hmm. uh, on a number of fronts. We have from, from the Jacksonian era, the uh, the the rise of the common man, so-called, uh, mm -hmm. leads to uh, you know attacks on professionalism and uh, almost an anti-intellectual uh, mm -hmm. argument. But given that the intellectual argument is for things like phrenology or homeopathic cures, uh, the 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 doctors don't have much of a leg to stand on because they're they're really wrong, and the the average citizen actually does know about as much about medicine. And disease as the doctor does. Well, you know, life expectancy was actually in decline in the antebellum era because of um, the constant increase in concentration of people in cities. Um, so epidemics were spreading. And, um, you know, some scholars have pointed out that um, lifespan had declined in, in some areas of the United States to the mid-40s, um, you know, by mid-century. Um, so, yeah, the, from a layperson's perspective, uh, Professional doctors didn't necessarily have a claim um, to being better at healing than the average person. And Jacksonian culture was really confirming that you know, if you took matters into your own hand, um, this was a good thing, right? <laughs> you know, like moral reform and all of these sorts of things. So you see the development of homegrown American um, 
physicians, you know, like Thomsonian medicine, um, using peppers and hot steam and <laughs> these sorts of things um, as cures or, you know, uh, Graham, Sylvester Graham and the mm-hmm. idea of, you know, diet, changing your diet, abstaining from, you know, sexual exploits, these sorts of things. Uh, and they seemed uh, as useful or, you know, at least as convincing as some of the bloodletting um, had. And you really see the, the Civil War is great for this because, um, you know, up until the Civil War, mostly people had never been to a hospital. Many of them had never seen a doctor before. Um, so for many of them, the first time they experienced a professional physician um, prescription was during the war, and they'd received this sort of mercury-based dose, and they'd feel terrible afterwards, and they'd say, oh, my gosh, I, th- I thought I felt bad before. I took this medicine. Now I feel like I'm going to die. Now I need to go to the hospital. So, yeah, I mean, for those who experienced professional care, it did not feel like cure. <laughs> And the the use of uh, well, in the absence of effective professional medicine, uh, you point out that people did rely on on home medicine, on on self uh, treatment, mm-hmm. and on being treated within the family. That that, that was the the standard. Right. So we we think if if today we assume you don't feel good, you should uh, in theory go to a doctor if you had health insurance, and right. uh, if uh, or go to a hospital. People, people without health insurance, routinely go to hospitals for routine care in the emergency room. And yet, in the 1860s, a hospital was a, a very different kind of place. Right. Yeah. I mean, so one of the first things I'd say is, you know, even today, um, the first person we often turn to in illness is whoever lives with us, right? A spouse, True. a mother. Uh, you know, so. We're talking about a very rural America where you just don't have access to doctors. So, of course, the first person you rely upon is, you know, the members of your household. And women were classically tasked um, with caring for one another, uh, caring for the family. And they would pass around recipe books and, um, you know, domestic manuals, things like Dunn's Domestic Medicine, uh, which were home cures. Um, and, you know, in the absence of real cure, at least there was individualized and comforting care, right, that came from your family members. But when it came to hospitals, almost nobody had been to these things because they tended to be located in urban areas, and most Americans didn't live in urban centers. And hospitals were sort of considered more akin to what I'd almost say were almshouses, places that the poor would go uh, people who had no family, or let's say you were traveling and became ill and you know had nowhere else to go, so it just wasn't expected that your average American would end up in a hospital. They were foreign and terrifying places that all of a sudden the war hits and soldiers are expected to go to them and they think, what are these things? They're terrifying. I'm going to go there. Nobody will know me, and they'll just let me die. You know all these stories that soldiers would pass around the ranks about. Oh, if you go to the hospital. You know, no one will care for you, and your feet will freeze off, and the rats will eat them. Yeah, and they really believed this, because <laughs> what did they have to compare to <laughs> nothing? They had no experience with that, so that they would expect right. that. Um, well, what about the state of medical care? Once you have the, these uh, enormous armies brought together, and mm-hmm. you make a very interesting point that armies are cities, 
that, right. that there are more people in the Army of Northern Virginia than any city in the Confederacy except New Orleans. So now you've suddenly got these these very urban conditions of crowded people uh, together, uh, even without shooting at each other, which, of course, they're also doing. Mm-hmm. So you've got all this disease, all these injuries. Um, what, how, what was the official response? What kind of medical bureaucracy was there? Yeah, I mean, this is a really complicated question. So I'd first say there's two, two things happening. First of all, you have these roving cities, right, city-sized armies, uh, with little to no infrastructure, or at least mobile infrastructures. Um, secondly, you brought up this idea that we're in the midst of a war here. It's not normal circumstances. So it's not roving cities in, you know, times of peace. We're talking about war mobilization is happening. Battles are happening. What does that mean? It means carnage. It means dead bodies everywhere. It means um, you're digging up the ground. You're disru- disrupting the environment. Um causing standing pools of water wherever, you know, these men are, are roaming, um, which attracts insects and, you know, flies are attracted to the body. So, first of all, you're altering the natural environment to make it much more hostile um, to the human body. Secondly, you've got these big armies that, are, that need to be attended to as if they were a city, but they're moving. You know, in the Shenandoah Valley, they're moving fast. On the peninsula, they're moving very slowly. (laughs) You have to accommodate them in these different ways. And then you have the medical departments, which are tasked with uh, accommodating this complicated situation. In the Confederacy, you have a medical department that needs to arise entirely from scratch, just like everything else. Um, So that's difficult. Although on the Union side, you have an old army structure with a lot of curmudgeons who don't want to, um, you know, change with the changing times. Um, and then you have civilians knocking at the door saying, well, we'd like to help out in the medical bureaucracy. And then furthermore, uh, when it comes to Army Health, the medical department is by no means the only department that is concerned with issues that affect health. You have subsistence, right, food, um, and rations were a terrible problem um, all the way up through the summer of 1862 and, you know, beyond, depending on where and when we're talking, uh, fruits and vegetables weren't being issued to the soldiers, and they all came down with scurvy. Um, In the summer of 1862, scurvy ravaged um, both sides, and scurvy takes a while to manifest, about three months or so. Um, But scurvy has mental and physical ramifications, so suddenly you have these sickly, despondent armies and if you had just given them fruits and vegetables, they would have been fine or better. Um, so, you know, you have subsistence, and then you have um, clothing, right, the quartermaster department, uh, making sure the men have enough tents and clothes um, and proper shoes because hookworm will enter through your feet. Uh, you know, this kind of thing. Mm. And the men uh, are undisciplined. They're all volunteers, citizen soldiers for the most part. They're volunteers. So they go marching, and they think, well, gee, it's 90 degrees today. I'm hot as heck. Um, I don't feel like carrying my coat, so there it goes. I just threw it aside. And then, you know, that night when it's 20, uh, <laughs> the other day, it wouldn't be that dramatic. But, you know, they would really regret casting this aside, and then they wouldn't be supplied with a new coat in, you know, who knows how long. Um, so all of these sorts of problems, very complex situation uh, with no single answer. Now... The death toll in the war as a whole, you know, traditionally uh, used to be six hundred twenty thousand. Now it's 
uh, with with more recent counting, is is up over seven hundred thousand. There was a a piece you may have seen originally. I think it was in Civil War history, and then the right. uh, the New York New York Times Disunion uh, column had uh, a reprint or the same idea. Nicholas Marshall mm-hmm. writes that that uh, we overstate the death in the Civil War because. Uh, people died at astonishing rates anyway in the 19th century. I'm mm. very simplifying his argument, but right. uh, that to simply take the percentage of casualties as a percentage of the whole population and apply it to today and say, oh, that means millions of people would have died, right. is not accurate. Um, is he on to something? Well, I mean, so this is the, the question of Civil War numbers is a vexing one um, on so many levels. Um, and when you are doing research at the level I do it, so at the common soldier, the enlisted man, mm-hmm. the way you collect numbers on them, um, you know, are, you know, if we're talking sickness, it's who shows up for sick call, right? Um, and at sick call, you would present, this would be probably after breakfast. If you were feeling ill, ill enough that you were, um, that you wanted to present yourself. So that means... You're putting yourself out on. You're putting yourself on the line because soldiers were often afraid of physicians. So if you're sick enough that you're going to hazard uh, visiting the regimental surgeon, you present yourself at sick call. You say what your symptoms are, and the surgeon inspects you and decides if you're sick or if you're faking. If you're a malingerer, and oftentimes they were marked as malingerers. That was embarrassing. You know, maybe someone would think you're being cowardly. Um, which was a real character assassination in the mid-19th century. So maybe you'd be turned away with, without help, without care. Or maybe you'd be deemed sick, and then you'd be recorded in the official record as being sick, and then you'd be administered a medicine, um, and good luck with that, right? Um, yeah. So the way sickness was recorded was very, uh, you know, kind of haphazard, Um I'm interested in mental health, and mental health was just, you know, barely recorded at all. They recorded insanity, nostalgia, which was considered fatal homesickness, um, and suicide. Um, so basically, you had to be, you know, raving, a raving lunatic um, to get recorded, or otherwise on your deathbed, or you'd have to kill yourself in order to get recorded in the official records as to mental health. So I'm just bringing this up to say, in general, the numbers we have on the Civil War are terrible. They're really unreliable, even casualty records. You know, people would exaggerate, they'd underreport, they'd just be confused because the battlefield was incredibly confusing and chaotic. Um, you know, so when we, first of all, any estimates of numbers are going to be problematic. And, you know, using things like the census is useful to try to correct for some of these things. Um, but we really can't get a, yeah. a, a firm handle on it. Right. We're going to take another short break. We're going to come right back, talk more. Uh, our guest tonight, Catherine Meyer, author of Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers in the Environment in 1862, Virginia. And this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Catherine Shively Meyer, author of Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers and the Environment in 1862, Virginia. It describes the ways in which soldiers interacted with their environment, particularly the way their health interacted with the environment, with the mosquitoes bearing malaria and the ticks and lice and the mud and rain, uh, the uh, various elements of the natural world that are as, as much at war with the soldiers as the other side, uh, Union or Confederate, seem to be. Uh, Katie, when you're when I was reading this, I recalled uh, at the museum I used to work at, we used a journal from the 44th Indiana as a mm-hmm. running thread through a lot of our exhibits, and in one of them, the soldier points out when going to visit the regimental surgeon was. Uh, he says, the boys call that instant death. Uh, they, that was their nickname. So uh, you, you didn't want to visit, didn't want to see the regimental surgeon uh, no. in Indiana or in Virginia. Uh, uh, but let me ask a, a question. Something you raised several times in the book is that if you are in camp, uh, the soldiers dig their latrines in uh, too close to the kitchens. They... Uh, you know, foul the area. They use up the drinking water and, and foul that, uh, and disease breaks out. So it's healthier to be on the march. But if you're on the march, you're subjected to the rain and wind and exhaustion. Uh, food doesn't catch up to the the marching troops, so you uh, you become weak and liable to disease. And you wish you were in camp with a snug tent over you. Uh, safer to march or safer to camp? Yeah, I mean, and this this question is one that is sort of without an answer. I'll kind of answer it. 
Um, but that's why these two campaigns are so interesting to look at, right? Because the Shenandoah mm-hmm. Valley had such a rapid march rate, uh, whereas the Peninsula campaign was very sluggish. Um, so what I found, uh, mainly through the official records, is that in the spring, soldiers were more sickly in the valley, and in the summer, they were more sickly in the penins- on the peninsula. And, uh, you know, we can, we can now correlate a lot of that to mosquitoes um, in the swamps really, you know, festering in the summer and malaria breaking out and typhoid and all these sorts of things um, in the festering of summer in, on the peninsula. Uh, whereas in the valley, uh, exposure was really intense um, in the spring. You were seeing a lot of uh, the weather was shifting, um, you know, it would vacillate quite a, mu- quite a bit um, on any given day. Uh, so that's what the men were experiencing. And, um, you know, the ways that the soldiers coped with the uh, various experiences of marching and camp were often quite similar. They don't, they vary slightly um, depending on what you're doing. So, for instance, if you were camping for a, peri- a longer period of time, soldiers would want to drain their camps of moisture um, so that they could sleep because they didn't want to sleep in a puddle. Um, Although some guys did sleep in a puddle and they just sort of wring out their blankets when they became too wet, take a drink and then roll over and go back to sleep. Um, And they were quite proud of that. Um, But if they could, they'd want to drain their camp of moisture. And they didn't understand that what they were actually doing was dissuading mosquitoes and therefore making it less likely they'd contract malaria, but they were doing a good thing for themselves. Um, of course, on the march, um, you know, soldiers were constantly in search of clean water, and they didn't know about bacteria, but they did know that some water smelled disgusting and tasted disgusting, and they didn't want that water. Uh, they wanted water that tasted clean. So on the march, you were much more likely to find water that tasted, um, you know, palatable, um, and that water was most likely healthier, um, you know, by sort of modern um, standards. So they, when they're doing this on the march, you talk also about how when they're on the march, uh, they engage in uh, self-care by straggling. And when we read about straggling in the Civil War, it tends to be filtered through the officers' accounts, and they sure. they hate it. Uh, but you you raise an interesting description of straggling as as a good health practice. Can you talk about right. that? Sure. Um, so to be fair, from the command perspective, of course, straggling is a bad thing. It critically deprives commanders um, of their troops that they're expecting to be present in the ranks. The problem is they're not necessarily considering the quality of the troops that they have in the ranks. Um, you know, they're sort of basing it on who, who presents for roll call. Um, but you may have very, very sick men presenting for roll call who haven't been shuffled off to the hospital, et cetera. And um, those men might benefit from practicing what I call self-care. Um, and self-care techniques would range, um, you know, they're very diverse, but just to give a few examples, um, I've already said some, draining your camp of moisture, locating clean water, uh, washing your clothes and your body frequently, um, foraging for fruits and vegetables, um, or seeking out shelter um, from the rain. Um, you know, if you'd been in a rainstorm for five days straight, or let's say you were ill um, and you were seeking out a place to recover to get some civilian care. So, you know, going home, if you were, say, one of Stonewall Jackson's troopers, who meant, you know, many of whom lived right nearby in the valley. 
Uh, and boy, did they take advantage. They'd go home for you know, two, three, four weeks, um, hang out with the family, recover, rejuvenate, come back to the ranks, you know, please as a peach. <laughs> so straggling, of course, from the command perspective looks, you know, terrible. It looks like, the, you know, there's poor discipline in the ranks. Um, but from the soldier perspective, when you read what the soldier's account said, many of them claimed that, you know, they would have fallen ill or, um, you know, succumbed to illness if they hadn't straggled uh, and that they only planned to be gone a day or so um, and that they had every intention of returning to the ranks healthier and in a better state. They considered this part of being a seasoned soldier. The the idea of seasoning is interesting. Typically, it again, when it's used in, in Civil War writing, we think of troops getting used to army life or building up immunities to uh, childhood diseases like chickenpox or mumps that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you, if you survive, you're immune after that. So, and that's a very passive uh, idea, right. but you, you yeah. present seasoning as much more, as much more agency. Right. Yeah, and exactly. That's why I think we needed to take another look um, at what, at all of the meanings of seasoning, um, because, you know, we do tend to focus, um, some scholars do look at the, the early stage of seasoning, the becoming acclimated to contagious disease. But most scholars, when they talk about seasoning or transitioning to being a soldier from a citizen, um, they focus on combat, of course, because, you know, that's sort of the feature. Um, that's what soldiers were, in a way, looking forward to. You know, they, much, mm-hmm. they would much rather experience the job they came to do um, than be sickly somewhere from diarrhea, right? Um, but when it came to the kind of seasoning I add um, to the piece, this is how they acclimated to sort of daily life of soldiering. And that involved the process of adapting to their environment, which they believed potentially deadly. Um, and they were right. Um, and this was a very active thing, and it involved choices and individuality. And you know, it pushed against the boundaries of Army discipline. But as citizen soldiers, uh, many of them didn't see that to be a major conflict, particularly in 1862. Um, but yeah, they made choices about whether or not to practice self-care and really adapt. And then many of them took great pride in their progress as soldiers. You'd see them celebrating things like, when I first came here, I was weak, but now I don't mind getting wet more than a couple of ducks. You know, these sorts of self-congratulatory, uh, we've become real soldiers because we can withstand the weather or the southern climate, um, etc. One of the things that uh, that also comes out in this book is the the a class dimension to disease mm-hmm. and healthcare. That uh, to some extent, the army bureaucracy or uh, officers or even some civilians back home uh, blame the soldiers for not taking care of themselves properly, for not not doing what middle class reform minded citizens would do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, this comes from a long um, historical tradition that makes uh, logical sense, right? Because um, in the past, it had, especially in the Mexican-American War, it had been shown, it had been proven, and the U.S. Sanitary Commission produced statistics to show this, that regular soldiers, professional soldiers, uh, who were well-disciplined, you know, under threat, under various threats, um, (laughs) like the death penalty, um, you know, they, they uh, attended to themselves um, in very meticulous ways, but with citizen soldiers, 
uh, discipline wasn't so rigid, right? I mean, you still have some election um, of your officers, and if you're getting elected as an officer, you want to be popular. So, you know, these sorts of problems, um, a lot of middle-class Americans were hearkening to these and saying, look, soldiers are not very disciplined. They're doing things like eating sweets, and that's why they have diarrhea, the number one killer of the Civil War, right? Um, they're picking out these sorts of things. And then it's also part of this larger class landscape at mid-19th century where the middle and upper classes think that they're more religious, uh, more moral, um, all the good stuff, right? And that the lower classes don't know how to attend to themselves as well. So they need to be instructed. Um, but so you see instruction. Me, I want to push back on that point because yeah. the, the volunteer, uh, the, the regular army soldiers uh, in the Mexican War, certainly, and at the beginning of the Civil War, to the extent there are any, uh, are not middle-class people. The, that the army Correct. is the last refuge, and the, these well-drilled, disciplined soldiers are, are are not middle class. They are they they are the dregs of society. Uh, so, so is it so much that they're saying the Civil War volunteers are are not of the right class background, or that they just haven't learned how to act as soldiers need to in wartime? So, two separate issues, and you're right to um, clarify, right? So, one of them is that the vast majority of Civil War soldiers are citizen soldiers, or they're citizens transitioning uh, mm-hmm. into soldier life, and therefore, um, they don't know the regulations, and they push back against the regulations. Um, and often, their officers don't know the regulations either, and they're learning them. Um, so, there's this kind of period of time in which they're adjusting to discipline and maybe fully or don't fully make the adjustment, whereas regular soldiers um, do adhere to army discipline. Um, So that is a separate issue um, that is known and documented amongst um, the newspapers and the American populace. Okay, so they they recognize that citizen soldiers, that volunteers, um, have a problem with discipline. And then there's the separate cultural, uh, larger cultural issue which is that the um, lower ranks enlisted people need to be instructed, right? They need to be instructed through the newspapers, through various literature, through their officers, um, in how to conduct themselves in the most moral ways. Uh, Because if you're moral, then you're healthy, then you're healthier. Mm -hmm. Well, the the book uh, gives us a healthy uh, understanding, I, I would say, of what's going on in the common soldier's world in 1862 Virginia, and by extension throughout the the entire war. Uh, We are unfortunately at the end of our hour today, uh, and we'll have to leave the conversation here. But listeners, uh, this is part of a uh, rejuvenation of Civil War scholarship. The the, uh, books that have come out in the last few years that have taken on new topics are... uh, Answering the the age old question, you know, haven't we written enough about this? The answer is always no, because there's always new ways to look at things, and this uh, certainly is one, and one that you will enjoy reading. Uh, so, Katie, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jerry. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 